Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet wasallam, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Al-Maghrib Live Virtual Seminars. For those who want the classroom experience and the comfort of the home all at once, Al-Maghrib Virtual Seminars are live online sessions taking everything great about on-site classes, the immediate feedback, interactions, and the company of fellow students and bring it to you in real time. You can study and interact with your favorite instructors from anywhere in the world at the time zone that works for you. All right, Hijra to Medina. Hijra to Medina. Different things that we learn from the Hijra. So the Prophet ﷺ was 13 years in Mecca, right? And then the issues became intensified and they plotted to kill the Prophet ﷺ in the end. As the Muslims started traveling for the Hijra, they said that we can't let the Muslims go like this. And they thought to themselves, you know, they sat in a gathering and they said, what can we do? Right? So one person says, let's imprison him. And they said, no, we can't imprison him. Someone else will say, um, let's follow his religion. They're like, no, no, we're not going to follow his religion. They go through all these different options. And shaitan, in the form of an old man, came into this gathering. And so as they're going through the options, then finally, the suggestion was made to kill the Prophet ﷺ. Why hadn't they killed the Prophet ﷺ so far? The reason they didn't kill him was because he had a tribe defending him. And basically the tribe would not allow for the Prophet ﷺ to be killed. It basically would tear all of Mecca apart if the Prophet ﷺ was killed. So now Iblis, who's sitting in the gathering, it's like the suggestion is giving, what if you have a son, like a key person, from each of these different tribes, and all of them participate in the assassination of the Prophet If that's the case, they all participate in the assassination, then when Quraysh wants to seek you know, and fight with the people who killed the Prophet they will not be able to pinpoint which specific tribe it was, and thus they will have to, they won't have any other choice except to accept the blood money except blood money, and that would be the end of the Prophet ﷺ. They agreed to this, and this was the plot to kill the Prophet ﷺ. Those people who did hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ, permission was granted to perform hijrah. So Abu Bakr ﷺ was known to be one of the first people to do any of those good deeds. So Abu Bakr immediately wanted to perform hijrah to Medina. When we say the word hijrah, it means like migration, right? Emigration. It's to leave from one area to another, hijrah. Abu Bakr who wanted to go immediately, and the Prophet told him to be patient. He said, for perhaps Allah will give you a companion to travel with you. And the Prophet never told him that it would be him, but he said, perhaps Allah will give you someone to travel with you. And so Abu Bakr in his preparation the whole time, he had like two camels prepared, he had you know, food enough for two people. Everything that he had was in preparation for two people to travel. He didn't know who the other person would be, but he was hoping that it would be the Prophet Some people traveled in secret, and actually a lot of the companions would travel in secret. Umar was very strong. When he became Muslim, he came to the Prophet and, and the Prophet said, isn't it time for you to become Muslim? And Umar said, this is the reason that I came. Umar used to torture the Muslims before. Okay? Umar used to torture the Muslims before. Not only that, but he used to voluntarily torture other people's slaves. So like, 
not only is he torturing his slaves that would become Muslim, but he's going to other people and saying that if you become tired from torturing them, let me torture them for you. That's how much Umar was harsh against the Muslims. And when the Muslims are traveling to Abyssinia, right, there was a moment where some of the relatives of Umar, they're traveling, and Umar asked them, it was like late night, he saw that the, you know, they're getting ready to leave. And Umar like felt sad and he said, you know, may you go in peace. So the, one of his relative said to her relative that I think Umar might become Muslim. And then her relative said in response, he said, no, Umar's donkey will become Muslim before Umar becomes Muslim. Like it's not happening. You can't imagine that someone that would be so tough against the Muslim and so harsh that would become Muslim. And yet this was the case, Umar anhu decided to kill the Prophet he'd had enough no matter what happened, he was going to kill the Prophet on his way, then one of the companions saw him and he's like, well why don't you start with your sister first? And he's like, my sister became Muslim? And to divert Umar from the Prophet to give this companion time to warn the Prophet He went to his sister's house, they were like reading Quran and he came in, he slapped his sister and you know, hit her husband. And his sister said in response, well, maybe you don't have the truth, Umar. And then Umar radiallahu anhu, he, when he saw his sister bleeding, he calmed down and he said, let me, you know, share with me what you've been reading. And he read from Surah Taha. Taha, manzalna alayka al-Qur'an li tashqa. Surah Taha, and then Umar radiallahu anhu then went to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hamza radiallahu anhu is there. And they said, if Umar radiallahu anhu comes and if he tries to do anything, we will kill him with his own sword. And it's not, we're not even going to kill him with our sword. We'll take his sword and kill him with it. And Umar radiallahu anhu came, the Prophet sallam, grabbed him, and he said, isn't it time for you to become Muslim, O Umar? And Umar radiallahu anhu said, I've come for no other reason except this. And he became Muslim. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. Then Umar radiallahu anhu asked the Prophet sallam, he said, aren't we on the truth? And he said, yes. He said, aren't they on the falsehood? He said, yes. And he said, then why are we hiding? And so, subhanAllah, if you read the biography of Umar radiallahu anhu, he said the day Umar radiallahu anhu became Muslim, that was a conquest for the Muslims. It was like one of the greatest victories for the Muslims was the day he became Muslim. Like imagine someone that powerful. And, and the companions say that we were never able to pray publicly until the day Umar became Muslim. Umar went public. Umar would go and pray in public. He doesn't care who watches him. Nobody could say anything to him. And so the other companions were able to pray publicly after that because of Umar anhu. In fact, Umar anhu, there was like this person amongst the mushrikeen that he was like, you know, the gossip monger guy. And Umar anhu, know, everybody knows this is the gossip monger. His job is to like go around gossiping about everything. And so Umar anhu, he's the blabbermouth when given to divulging, you know, all this information. Umar radiallahu anhu, he's like, did you hear what happened? He's like, what? He's like, I became Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> and then this guy is like, he didn't even answer. He's like, everybody, Umar became Muslim. And, and you know, news started spreading in, in, um, in Mecca about that. He went to Abu Lahab's house, knocked on the door, and he's like, you know, hello, hello. And then he's like, you know, did you hear what happened? He said, no, what happened? I became Muslim. And Abu Lahab like slammed the door in his face and he's like, you've ruined my day. <laughs> and Umar radiallahu anhu went to the Kaaba and he, you know, announced to everybody, I've become Muslim. 
and you know they all started beating Umar They got into a fight. All these people ganged up on Umar, and he fought all day long with them. And he kept doing that. And subhanAllah, leading up to this point in Hijrah, when Umar is doing Hijrah, this is his announcement to everybody. He goes out to the Kaaba in front of everybody and he says, tomorrow I'm going to do Hijrah from you know, such a direction. Whoever would like their mother to cry over their dead body, <laughs> you can meet me over there at that, in that direction. And that was it. So nobody, nobody, they're like, you go, just go. <laughs> and Umar radiallahu who went. So, and Islam was supported. There's, you know, this is in the history of the Khulafa class. Umar radiallahu anhu, just kind of like a side point about Umar. His characteristic was that he loved people to criticize him. Remember we're talking about criticism and everybody's worried about criticism and so on and so forth. If someone criticized Umar, he would be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that someone wasn't scared of him and went beyond the fear factor and yet told Umar what he felt was the truth. Right? So Umar's statement was, Rahimallahu ahda ilayna ayyubana. He would say, May the mercy of Allah be upon the person who gives as a gift to us our mistakes. There was this guy, one time I was doing a Jummah khutbah, they asked me to give an announcement, right? And actually there was a Maghrib class, like the next, actually that night. This, they said, oh, you, there's a bunch of announcements going to go around in, in the city and so on and so forth. At the end of the Jummah khutbah, I forgot to give the announcement. They wanted me to do it during the Jummah khutbah. At the end of the, end of the khutbah, I forgot the announcement. Okay, so like, no big deal, right? <laughs> After the Jummah khutbah, this guy comes up to me, like mafia style. He's Egyptian. You know how Egyptians get this mafia look, right? They're just so angry. And I was like shocked. I was like freaked out at him. He's like, why didn't you say the announcement? I said, I forgot. And he looked at me with like such disgust. And he left me. He didn't, he didn't say anything. He left him. Then I got an email the next day. And he basically, he said, you know, oh, you know what, all these announcements happen in the city. He said, except in such and such a masjid, and because it failed, is because of Muhammad al-Sharif. And he said, Muhammad al-Sharif was a disgrace to what we were planning to do, and he's a failure, and, you know, you know blah, 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 all this stuff. So it's not only he's emailing me, he's emailing all the leaders in the community. And he wrote this, like, what does that do to you? Someone writes that to you, right? You're, you're a disgrace. The Ummah, because they asked you to do an announcement and you forgot. Okay, so I'm flexing my muscles. I'm ready to punch him out. Do a, like a Jackie Chan on the guy. <laughs> At the end of, and you know what the class was that I was preparing? It was the history of the Khulafa. And I was preparing the life of Umar at that time. And at the end of his email, he, he said, Brother Muhammad, I hope you don't take any offense. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's a good one, right? I hope you don't take any offense because Umar radiallahu anhu loved to be corrected. And then uh, Umar radiallahu anhu loved to be corrected and, you know, and this is just a correction for you and so on. So, you know, my heart's beating tough, the Jackie Chan thing, the whole, you know, ready. To, and, and actually, I, I learned a lesson from there. Whenever someone writes an email to you like that, how many people get crazy emails like that? People hating on them by email. The rest of you do too, you're just not raising your hands. <laughs> if you get those crazy emails, write a response in a Word document and save it, right? Don't email back. And then the next day, wait at least 24 hours. And this is, this is where I made up that policy. I said, I'm going to wait like 24 hours 
And tomorrow, if I still feel like sending it, I'll send it. It was like I was going to destroy the guy <laughs> on, on the return email. But I didn't. Alhamdulillah, I never did it. And believe me, in, in hindsight, I'm so thankful to Allah I didn't send that email. And so I went back to studying, and I'm opening the books of Umar radiallahu anhu and reading his history. And I said, he was right. Umar radiallahu anhu really did love to be corrected. If you study his life, someone would say something to Umar radiallahu anhu, and you know what, he would just be so happy that in the Ummah of Muhammad there wouldn't be people who would be afraid of him to the point where they wouldn't tell him the truth. Such as when he became the Khalifa and Salman al-Farisi, you know, when Umar radiallahu said, you know, if I do anything wrong, correct me. Salman radiallahu said, we'll correct you even if we need to do it with our swords. And, the, and Umar radiallahu is saying, alhamdulillah, that, that, you know, there's people like that in Ummah Muhammad that are not afraid. And he's saying, oh Allah, you know, don't let their fear of me, you know, hold them back from telling me what is the truth. And so on. This is the quality of Umar radiallahu anhu. And then the more I read from him, I felt so honored that he compared me to Umar radiallahu anhu. And then I, and then, so when I did respond, I looked back like a day or two later, kind of, this was like a Friday, and then by about Sunday, you know, I calmed down and so on and so forth. And I said, at the end of your email, you compared me to Umar radiallahu anhu. And I said, I am so honored that you did that, and I will not let you down. I will do what Umar radiallahu anhu did and thank you for sharing our mistakes, sharing my mistakes. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive me and hopefully inshallah I can make do better in the future. And that was it. That's the end of the email. Now subhanAllah, I learned another lesson in, in all of this and that is the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu When someone is attacking you, the angels are defending you. There was an incident where this person was cursing Abu Bakr in front of the Prophet and the Prophet was quiet. Then Abu Bakr is confused, he's quiet and he's smiling and, and then Abu Bakr then starts answering the people back. When he started answering the people back, the Prophet stopped smiling and walked away. And now he was really confused. And so the Prophet said that and when they were saying these things to you, the angels of Allah were defending you. Of course, Abu Bakr is more beloved to Allah than this person, like saying these bad things about Abu Bakr anhu. But when you like took it on yourself to respond, then the angels, they stopped responding on your behalf. So what happened in this email, like between those two, three days, even though I didn't see it, every, remember I said that all the community leaders were CC'd on that email? Every single one of them defended me. Every single one of them had wrote an email and probably 10 times more harsher than, you know, um, than what this guy wrote to me. Saying that, no, you're the one who's like, don't say this about Muhammad and so on and so forth. They all defended me in that email. And, in, and that's why I say, in hindsight, they didn't CC me on those like, defense emails. If I had CC'd them in my email, I would be like that kid B, right? I have all the sympathy and all of this stuff until I decide to defend myself and then there's no sympathy left, right? Anyhow, that was Umar radiallahu anhu. Lessons that we learned from the Hijrah. The Hijrah to Medina was the Prophet just escaping and running away because they were plotting to kill him. And the answer is no, that's not the case. That's not the case. In fact, it's a strategic location. The Prophet was moving to Medina to become a political leader there. And their plot to kill the Prophet the Hijrah had actually started. The companions were already doing Hijrah before the Prophet did Hijrah himself. Or before they plotted to kill the Prophet they were already doing Hijrah. 
So sometimes a person might say something like, oh, the Prophet ran away from Mecca to Medina. That's, it's not running away, but in fact, it's carrying on the message of Islam in soil that's more fertile. This Hijrah to Medina, throughout time, there will always be this race against like good and bad and so on. And so this race, and, and they went to Medina, the Prophet was continuing in like these people are, are insisting on you know, the evil and the Prophet ﷺ is insisting on enjoining the good. Nothing can stop that. A person goes to another area and keeps going to another area no, another area until the message of Islam is established. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ means it, and, and when they're plotting against you. يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ right? To either kill you or expel you. وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ That they plot and Allah plots and Allah plans and Allah is the best of planners. So they're plotting and when someone is like the head of a da'wah, right? Head of a da'wah organization, someone is asking about leadership skills. One of the key leadership skills is making sure to build other leaders. Because if you have an organization that's built on one leader, what do you need to do to like finish off the organization? You just snip out that leader and everything collapses. And that's the case in a lot of organizations. It's a bunch of followers under one leader. When the leader is gone, that's it. Nobody is ready to take over and nothing is prepared and so on and so forth. And here's actually a side point to that. Sometimes a leader prepares the next leaders to be leaders, but doesn't prepare them to prepare other leaders. So maybe they're smart. Yes, they have prepared another leader, but that leader will last for about two, three years, and then they have to go, and then everything collapses because they were not taught to prepare leaders from day one. So this is what you do. When you're preparing the next leader, you prepare the next leader and the leader after that as well. The, the leader and the leader after that, and you make it a policy that two leaders are prepared at a time each time. That always two leaders are prepared at a time. So they were trying to kill the Prophet and take out the head of the da'wah, and, and at, with that, they were hoping that you know, the da'wah would collapse. You'll also see that they would invest money, and they invest a lot of money to fight the da'wah. Billions and billions of dollars to fight the da'wah. So when the Prophet ﷺ was traveling from Mecca to Medina, when they found that they had lost him, and he had escaped from Mecca, they put out uh, a ransom for the Prophet ﷺ, a hundred camels. And I was asking a brother, like, how much a camel costs? In today's money, it's like $1,000, right? So it's like $100,000, maybe even more than that. A hundred camels, a huge amount of wealth. And so you see someone like Suraqa, who later became Muslim himself, radiallahu anhu. Suraqa is saying that he wanted the bounty all to himself. And he went out searching and trying to find the Prophet And he actually did find the Prophet Okay, and we'll talk about that in, in a while. You'll see the utilization of the youth. Utilization of the youth. So youth in the Hijrah, you had people like Ali radiallahu anhu, who slept in the bed of the Prophet and he was in his teenage years at that time. You had people like Asma radiallahu anha, a young girl, the son of Abu Bakr ibn Ariqat, ibn Ariqat, who was like uh, the, the guide, and you have another person by uh, Amr ibn Fuhaira. These are all youth in the community that helped in the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. I actually wanted to, because a lot of times people mention that, oh, the youth, the youth, the youth. The key people that moved the da'wah forward 
the key people that moved the Dawah forward were people in their 40s. Okay, so pay attention to that. People in their 40s. Where do we find people in their 40s? Where do they hang out in our Muslim community today? Where do they hang out? What's that, the cafes? <laughs> They're at home, that's right. They're at home watching TV. I find in, in the Dawah scene, people in their, between their like, you know, um, 40s, 50s, and so on, people who are very important in the Dawah, you will find them at Jummah Khutbah. You find them at Jummah Khutbah. The Jummah Khutbah crowd of people that come for Jummah Khutbah, in the past, they were the ones who were closest to the Prophet ﷺ. They were the ones who learned this deen. They were the leaders. And in fact, you'll see, for example, in the Battle of Badr, one of the um, muhajireen is standing and he sees two youth from amongst the Ansar. And he says to himself, I wish I had some older men standing beside me. He's like, he got a little scared because these youth are just, you know, they're just young in the battle and so on and so forth. And they're not experienced in battle. So meaning that these older men, again, a footnote to this, we have amongst our older, um, we call them older generation in comparison to us, but uh, they are like the Shabab, right? They're people in their 40s and 50s. In the past, in our communities, they're the ones who established the Masajid. Would you agree to that? So all these messages that you see around town, most of you had nothing to do with it. It was what we call the uncles. <laughs> The uncles did it. So here's an uncle, and he's like, we'll get a masjid. It will cost 500,000 pounds, but let's take a loan. <laughs> and you're like, are you crazy? You take a loan, and you're always in debt, and so on and so forth. Our generation doesn't do that. They were like, I could never ask anybody for money. I can't. And so it's like the uncles that go around asking everybody for money, always ask, and doing fundraisers and stuff. Do you guys do fundraisers all the time? Do you guys do fundraisers? How many people organize the fundraisers? Yeah, that's what I expected. <laughs> you got like three people here. It's the uncles that organize the fundraisers. Okay? So being just, there is that group of uncles that are concerned with building foundations. All these masajid built and all these halal butcher shops and stuff like that. These um, fundamentals are built by them. But now we need more from that generation. More to do, inshallah ta'ala. And I think that they're excited to do stuff. It just needs maybe some good leaders amongst them, inshallah ta'ala. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the statement in Arabic is called al-akhdu bil-asbab. It's to take advantage of the causes or to make sure all the causes you have put in place all the causes. So let's say, for example, a brother wants to get married, okay? Brother wants to get married. Okay, what have you done to get married? No, let's say, I'll give you an example. A brother wants to have children, but he doesn't want to get married or doesn't want to do any haram or something like that. How are you going to have a child? They're like, I don't know, but I just want it. Right? Or someone's like, what have you done to get married? They're like, I want to get married. What have you done? You know, there's nobody wants to marry me. <laughs> what have you done? So you've not taken any steps forward that, you know, these steps lead to marriage. Like, as they say, like, you know, there's clues. If someone has done something before, you can find what they did. There's a recipe to get that. How this person got married to such and such. And how this person made a million dollars. And how this person was able to open this organization. How, anything that you want, guaranteed someone has already gotten that. They already have it, so all you do is go to them, what are the asbab, what are the causes that led you to this effect? And I remember in Medina, even in this trip, 
uh, he was saying, what do you think is the main problem of the Muslims? He asked the question. <laughs> what is the main problem of the Muslims? And so his conclusion was that the Muslims do not pay attention to this. They don't pay attention to the causes. So if you want to build a Muslim empire and you want Muslims to rise up, everybody's like, let's just make dua. But dua, if you're sincere in your dua, you will know, sincere from Islam, that you have to take steps. You have to you know, give scholarships to students. You have to build universities. Like how many universities are you going to have to build if you want to you know, build like a renaissance of knowledge and so on and so forth. You have to build buildings. You have to do this. There's so many things involved. And that is al-asbab. Those are the causes. So you'll see in the Hijrah of the Prophet that he followed the causes. He followed the causes that would lead to the effect. Now, just because someone has all the cause in place doesn't mean that they'll get the effect. Right? So someone may, for example, oh, they've been to all the, um, you know, they've been to like Naseeb.com, they've been to Shadi.com, and they <laughs> tell everybody that they want to get married and so on and so forth. They've done everything, and in the end, they're still not married. What's the reason? They're like, it's got to be jinn, right? <laughs> it's not jinn. There's an ingredient, and that is that even if a person puts all their, their causes they still might not get the effect. So you don't place your trust in the cause. You place your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that means that like, if you prepared everything, you built a university in your, in your country, you've you know, trained and you've led and you've done all these orna and so on, and you're making dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings honor and nobility to the Muslims, you've done all your causes, the effect may or may not happen. And so you never desist from making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make that cause lead to the effect, right? And if it doesn't lead to the effect, you're like, there must have been something wrong. You go back, re readjust your causes. You're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, placing your trust in Allah. And so there's examples of this. In the hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu one of the causes that they know if they leave Mecca and they're being chased, everybody would go in the direction of Medina because they know that's the direction of the Prophet So what the Prophet did is he actually camped out in a cave that was very near to the Kaaba. In fact, I would say if you walked from the Kaaba to where Mughari um, Thor, where the Prophet the cave that they spent so many days there in, it is about, I would say, uh, maybe a 45-minute walk. A 45-minute walk from the Kaaba. Maybe it would have been longer at that time because they have tunnels now that go through the, like, the mountains. But you're talking about 45 minutes an hour walking. By car, it's about five minutes. By car, it's about five minutes to that cave. So they would immediately like, race out in that direction, but they wouldn't think to check, you know, just like right next door. So everybody's racing, racing in that area. But even still, they still checked. They climbed up the mountain. They went to like every cave. And they came to the cave where Abu Bakr and the Prophet were. And so things could have broken down at that point. And you'll see that the Prophet ﷺ, they placed their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the, and the effect was in the favor of the Prophet ﷺ. You'll also see the role of women. We were talking about the role of women in the seerah. There were women involved in this. So, for example, like Asma radiallahu anha, her nickname, Dhatun Nuttaqain, was from the hijrah. 
right? The, the owner of two belts was her nickname, radiallahu anha, because her belt, she ripped it in half and used part of it to like take the food to the Prophet sallallahu and her father. And with the other half, you know, she wrapped her garment. And so because of her effort in the hijrah, that she had this special nickname. The hijrah also is narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha. And you see other of the women, you know, they would go out and they might be separated from their husbands, such as Umm Salama radiallahu anha. And yet, you know, her husband uh, went to Medina and she's crying and crying every day going out until finally they felt sad for her and they let her join her husband in Medina. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in the, the planning for the hijrah, Abu Bakr radiallahu anha, till the last moment didn't know when the Prophet sallallahu this is his best friend and he doesn't know when he's doing hijrah and like how he's doing hijrah, all of that wasn't known. Just as we said, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was told that perhaps Allah would give him someone um, to do hijrah with. So Aisha radiallahu anhu narrates that the Prophet sallallahu came at a hot time of the day, right? So it's a hot time, usually at a hot time, everybody's like sleeping at the hot time, or they're just taking rest. It's not a time that you go and visit people. That's when the Prophet ﷺ came to visit Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And he told him, you know, like, you know, the family members, like, you know, asked them to go away. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, you know, they're just like your family members. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him that Allah has granted me permission to do hijrah. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's immediate reaction to that was, As-suhba ya Rasulullah which is like, together, O Messenger of Allah. And the Prophet ﷺ responded by saying, As-suhba, we will go together. And Aisha radiallahu anha said that I've never, you know, she heard of people, she heard of uh, like people saying that it is possible for someone to cry out of happiness. And she said, I never understood what they meant until that day when I saw my father crying out of happiness that he would get to go with the Prophet ﷺ and perform hijrah with him. And so the Prophet ﷺ, that night they left. That was the night that they came to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. So in the bed of the Prophet ﷺ slept Ali anhu in defense of the Prophet ﷺ. So this bed basically, they're planning to kill the Prophet ﷺ. Ali anhu might be killed that night. His face is covered, they don't know who it is. And they, at any time in the night, they could come and kill him. And so Ali radiallahu anhu went to sleep in defense of the Prophet on his bed, giving the Prophet the head start, you know, throughout the night to travel and travel and travel. And again, they didn't travel in the direction of Medina, but rather they went to Ghari Thor. The, the um, cave that they went to was called Ghari Thor, the cave of Thor. As we said, it's about a five-minute drive from the Kaaba. In their travels, they actually had, um, they had planned. When they went to the cave, the Arabs were expert in footprint reading. Okay? So this is basically what Arabs could do. If there's a camel walking by, they could tell where the camel came from. Right? So if the camel, for example, through the dung of the camel, would you say dung? Through the dung of the camel, they would look like, let's say, they, they see the dung and there's some date seeds in it or something. They'll say, oh, this camel came from the direction of Medina because they have dates in Medina. This is where, and, and dates are so precious, only in Medina where there's so many dates would they give it to the camels. And so they would know that, okay, this animal is coming from Medina. But they were also able to, you know, if they're looking at the tracks, they could tell that this camel is like the mother of this camel. 
right? They could tell who's related to who from the, the camel tracks. The Prophet and Abu Bakr, they could trace their tracks. So Asma' radiallahu anhu, they had sheep, and after the Prophet and Abu Bakr had escaped, she then took the sheep and went in their direction to wash away their tracks. So they couldn't be read. So that was Asma' radiallahu anhu doing that, bringing out the sheep. And when she would bring the sheep as well, she would take it to that area and milk it and give milk to her father and give milk to the Prophet one of, um, one of the shiuch was mentioning as well is that in the path of the hijrah, how comfortable do you think the cave was? How comfortable do you think the cave was? It's not very comfortable, right? You know, subhanAllah, sometimes in Hajj, you, like it's so tight and there's so many people in the valley of Mina that you like, if only I could go up to the mountain and just go sleep up there on the mountain. You know, we're used to just having lots of space. When you go up into the mountain, how would you like to sleep on rocks sticking into your back, right? Your head on a rock, jagged rock, and in your back, and so on and so forth. It's not very comfortable. But yet, the Prophet and Abu Bakr, they took residence in this cave for the sake of the da'wah. So it's a reminder when things aren't so comfortable, realize that people before you had suffered much like harder than what you've suffered for the sake of Islam. When they traveled to Medina, they also had a guide. They had a guide, and it's very dangerous traveling in the desert. It's not some simple matter. You could get lost. If you get lost in the desert, you'll die in the desert, right? And there's also there's snakes, there's all these different uh, things and so on that a person needs to be protected from. So you would have to have an expert guide. The guide that was with them was not Muslim. The guide that was with them was not Muslim. Why would they take a non-Muslim guide? Obviously he was trustworthy, but he wasn't Muslim. They say that because he knew the roads better than anybody else. Which is something that I found to be a recurring theme in the seerah of the Prophet that they often chose, they often chose expert people. And examples of that, like really quickly, Bilal radiallahu anhu, there was a companion who saw a dream of the Adhan. He went to the Prophet and the Prophet adopted it as the Adhan and he said, teach it to Bilal because he has a better voice than you. And someone might say, well, but I saw the dream. I'm the one who saw that I should be able to get the, say the Adhan. Bilal is more expert in saying the Adhan. And so he was the one who got to say the Adhan. There are other examples of that. This example where they took a mushrik guide, even though he was a Muslim, but he knew the land better. In the building of the masjid, of the Masjid Nabawi, there was a Yemeni person who came and he knew how to build bricks. But he wasn't like from the Muhajireen and so on. And he thought, maybe I should let the Muhajireen build it. And the Prophet ﷺ said, no, you build the bricks for them because you know better how to build the bricks. So it's like putting expert people in the positions of their expertise.